Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael, a wine enthusiast who also worked in sales and on a vineyard at one point. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 Certified in Wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. Which is why I end up asking him all the questions. And welcome back to Laidback Lush. Welcome back to Laidback Lush. If you haven't already done so, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Laidback Lush. We would love to hear from you, and you can hear all of Gabe's hot takes, which are done in studio by a troll that we have yet to figure out a way to control. Yeah, he uh, he's mischievous. Very mischievous. Shouldn't have given him the Twitter password, honestly. Yeah, I was thinking about revoking it, but somehow I feel like that would affect you. <sighs> nah, you, you know, I'm just, uh, he's like a, he's like a child to me in a way. A child to you? Yeah. Your inner child, maybe? Uh, I don't know what on earth you're implying, Michael. <laughs> so today on our 20th episode, <laughs> we are going to be talking about something that Gabe and I both enjoy and have been very excited about learning, as well as trying, mezcal. Now, this is a traditional drink that comes out of Mexico, and many people associate this with tequila. The association is well-earned, as all tequila is mezcal, but not all mezcal is tequila. There are certain restrictions that qualify things as being mezcal, and there are certain restrictions that qualify as being tequila. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about that, their production methods, their origins, as well as doing a small tasting in our episode today. Yep. So... What is the main ingredient? Now, we know this is a distilled liquid, but what are we using in order to get our fermentable sugars? We are using agave. Particularly, you are using the piña of the agave or the heart of the agave that is taken when they harvest the agave. Now, as far as the heart, if I'm picturing this plant, you have essentially a central succulent mm -hmm. with a bunch of these huge barbed leaves coming out of it about yeah. the size of a small car mm -hmm. actually yeah there are i forget how many species there are of agave oh it's well over 100 if i remember correctly only upwards of i think 50 between all the do's are allowed for mezcal production that does include wild indigenous varieties but some of the regions are even more stringent on what you can and can't use, so smaller numbers. And I understand that the maturation of agave not only raises some issues, but is part of what gives it such a complex flavor. Yeah, so agave takes approximately, I would say, 7 to 10 years to mature, typically more on the side of a decade. I know that some of the wild varieties, though, can get up to around 30 years. Yeah, so that's... um. As you kind of imply, there's a bit of a sustainability issue going on right now. We'll get into that uh, kind of going forward with production, but that's a large part of it is just how long it takes these plants to mature into something usable where you can harvest a piña. Now, that piña is going to be cooked, and that's actually where the name mezcal is thought to have come from, which would have come from mezcali, which means oven-cooked agave in, um, oh shoot, it's a very specific dialect of Spanish in Mexico. I did not write it down, but that's where the term is thought to have come from. The majority of what you're going to find here in the United States among the, you know, 30 to 50 varieties that tend to be used, Espadín is going to be your primary one because that is what's primarily used in Oaxaca, which is the primary DO or region of Mexico responsible for exporting to the United States. And I see this is where we get to the primary fork in the road between tequila and mezcal. Mm -hmm. You have 
primarily espadine, but also around 10 other varieties that will be used Mm -hmm. in Oaxaca as well as nine of the 33 states of Mexico in order to create mezcal, Mm -hmm. whereas tequila can only be made in Jalisco state and only with the blue Weber agave. Correct. Yeah. So after we're done getting the heart of this agave, so at the end of its maturation cycle, that central stave that sprouts up, I think it's like 15 feet. Yeah, it gets really tall. It, it's huge. That signifies the end of the life cycle of the agave. They chop that off, mm-hmm. they wait a little bit, and then they chop off all of those very large spines. Do they do anything with those spines? Do you know? I, I'm sure it's getting repurposed in some way, because that's just far too much waste to let slide when you can be profiting off of it. Yeah, I I would imagine there has to be some sort of application. Yeah. So we have those nine states. We have this heart, this piña of the agave, and then that gets chopped in half. And then what are they doing with that? So then that's going to go into, traditionally at least, it's going to go into a earthen pit, like literally like a dugout pit, where they will put coal and some wood and light it let it burn down to the coals and then they will put the piñas in and typically they will cover it in some way how long is it cooked a couple days and i see this is also where we get another one of those divergent preparation methods that allows the mezcal which is traditionally going to be more smoky Mm -hmm. from tequila yeah mezcal is widely known for being a very smoke-heavy liqueur. And that's accurate. Every mezcal I've tried has had at least some smoke. Now, that being said, some smoke is less than other smoke. Uh, It does vary by producer. And the industry consensus is too much smoke is a flaw, which I know Michael kind of disagrees with, but, you know, argue with the professionals. (laughs) You know, I can't disagree with them, but so much at this point, because I did try to make a pseudo smoked old fashioned <laughs> with some mezcal and having too much smoke on it. It kind of took away from, yeah, from it because mezcal, it doesn't have so much a burnt wood like you would find inside of scotch or bourbon. The wood inside of it. It almost feels like fresh shaven wood in most of the cases that I've come across now. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. again, I've, I have a very limited exposure to mezcal. The first time that you, you and I both tried it yeah. was at the Jasper Bar, mm-hmm. which thank you guys for being awesome and letting us try some of it after we got, I, I believe the drink was called Bowl America. Uh, I don't remember, but it was a really good drink. It was fantastic. And it was a really good mezcal that they used in the drink. Yeah. Everything about that bar is is fantastic. Yeah, very cool little place. So we have the piña now, and it's been cooked. And this produces a very cool shade of orange Mm -hmm. that is sweet to the taste, like toasted caramel, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So once the piña gets out of that earthen oven, it's going to then be crushed or mashed. There's a couple ways traditionally this was done. One of them was kind of, if you're familiar with a threshing floor for grain, think of that, but with the piñas instead of the grain. You know, there's like a donkey or a horse that will have a grindstone going in a circle and they'll mash it that way. Uh, Another way is they have these huge mallets. Yeah. 
This is kind of the more fun way, in my opinion, where they just literally, you know, mash these piñas up on the ground. Like mochi without the uh, pairing. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it, it can be done that way. I think my favorite is the giant clubs. <laughs> yeah. Where they, they just stand vertically over yeah. them and they're just mm -hmm. yeah hitting it over and over again. So it's a, typically is a very rustic technique. I will say, so in your more modern production, which some of these more modern facilities are popping up, you might find autoclaves for the roasting process, which in my opinion are not as good. And for this, they'll have machines that will mash everything yeah. up. For those, it's a machine that is about the size of a basketball court. Mm -hmm. I really don't like that method. Yeah. It, it loses a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. As far as the flavor goes, you lose it's a lot kind of, of like depth. Kind of like a big air fryer for the peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, it also reverses the process that typically you're going to have in your traditional styles of mezcal. It shreds the pina before it cooks it, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's cooking it chemically. Yeah. Which, that doesn't even sound appealing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know. It's like, here we have uh, this giant pit. We're going to be using these lovely types of pine wood and we're going to be filtering the smoke into it for three days you know sustainability issues aside that sounds a lot better than we shredded it in a giant machine that's going to chemically cook it somewhere inside of the contraption yeah i'm not a huge fan of the autoclaves myself i, I would much prefer these more traditional methods saying all that to say that that is the more modern method yeah, it's uh, popping up a lot a lot of your producers, I would say, at least the ones I've come across, are still using traditional method because that's kind of the appeal of Mezcal right now is that it's like kind of the most artisanal liquor on the market right now or one of the most artisanal liquors on the market right now that hipsters like to drink like me. So once you get past the mashing and the, you know, getting them all broken down and whatnot, the mash is then moved into a vessel of some kind typically it's going to be a clay or a wooden vessel or at least traditionally uh stainless steel can be used again in a more modern context but it's basically just left to sit and let whatever ambient yeasts are present start the fermentation process and it'll just go until that fermentation is finished oh, so they don't even need to have like a starter or anything like that from everything i read now it just starts how long do they typically leave it to ferment um that i don't think i wrote down um okay so i'm i'm just now looking this up i thought that i had actually written this down in my notes as well but it usually takes three to five days but can take up to 12 days or longer so i'm guessing that simply because of the fact that it does depend on ambient yeasts to generate the fermentation yeah that it can vary from time to time yeah so this drink from a historical perspective, is kind of thought to be what was present when the conquistadors came to Mexico. You had the story about the goddess. Yeah, there's this whole story about a goddess giving birth, and the the story was a little unclear to me when I was reading it. But essentially, it was that the agave was there, and lightning struck it on its big old stave, and that resulted in the sweet liquid being poured out mm -hmm. because the type of sugar that's inside of agave has to be cooked yeah. in order for it to be fermentable. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the lightning 
not only opened up the agave, but also cooked it at the same time. And so the inulin inside of it, which is a type of fructose, was then converted into something that was fermentable, and that was the drink of the gods, used ceremonially. The only thing that we do know that is true is that it was used ceremonially by the Aztecs and then discovered by the conquistadors, Mm -hmm. or you could say it was um, commandeered (laughs) by the conquistadors. Adapted. Adapted. It's uh, it was uh, it was appropriated <laughs> um, by the conquistadors in order to create mezcal. So that's where the distillation yeah. aspect came into play. Is they were aware of distillation. They said this is good, but what if we made it stronger? Yeah, and they were running out of their own their liquid. own distilled liquids. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like, man, we really love strong drinks, but boy, did we underestimate that journey. Yeah. So once the fermentation is wrapped up, it will go into a distillation method, uh, typically some kind of clay or um, copper pot still. I know some allow stainless steel. Uh, yeah, continuous stills are used in your more high volume mezcal yeah. production. I That's hear that true. most of the autoclaves will use the uh, continuous columns. Yeah. Which makes sense. It's just easier to mechanize that whole process if you're going to mechanize part of it. So it is twice distilled, though, if it's doing it in the more traditional method. This one is 42% alcohol by volume. Yeah, you're typically looking around what you would look for for a whiskey, I think, for in general, for mezcal, in terms of the ABV. Now, as far as the mythos behind this worm... people would go into a bar and they would be like, I want the one with the worm in it. And that's Mm going to be the smoky one. Yeah. What was the deal with that? Well, that was the deal with that. That was it. A producer. I don't remember who it was, but I want to say it was like almost right after World War II decided it would be a good marketing gimmick to put in the worm, quote unquote. Technically, it's not a worm. It is a larval form of a moth that lives in agave plants typically in the roots and the stems so these are actually related to agave it's not completely random so there is some sort of ecological tie correct yeah but it's it was it came from marketing the amount of things in (laughs) the alcohol industry that is tied to marketing exclusively there is some i guess modern ideas on does it benefit the drink itself does it impart flavor or something? Uh, mm, I don't know. Uh, so th- some of the other myths are it's indicating that it's a fit liquor to drink because, you know, it's going to preserve the, the larva or whatever. Yeah. That one I don't really believe all too much. Yeah. Specifically because they do have a method of drying those larvae mm-hmm. and then they're served with the mezcal, which... Yeah. I do want to try that out. I don't know when that developed. I don't know how traditional it is. You have fun with that. But I do want to try it. <laughs> you have fun with that. Yeah, I will watch. <laughs> I'll eat at almost anything that doesn't have dairy in it. Some people do eat the worm from the bottle. It makes sense. It's been infused with that flavor for so long that it would go well with it. So that that is a thing. But aside from maybe a, a cool gimmick, it's not essential or yeah. even traditional to mezcal as a drink. Now, we talked about how the complexities of the drink really come in through the method of roasting and distillation, as well as the very long growing process that Mm -hmm. the agave has to go through. Yeah, cultivation. 
Is there an aging process for this as a distilled beverage? There is, but the pretty large majority of mezcals you're going to find on the market are going to be Blanco or Hoven styles. These Blanco are, or Hoven. Yes. So that means up to two months of aging can be put on the mezcal. That can be in bottle. That can be in a cask similar to whiskey. This is going to be, again, the large majority of what's being sold. Most producers actually consider extended aging to mask the character of the liquor and the terroir that it came from. So it's not really smiled upon by a mm. lot of people for mezcal. It's not like whiskey or scotch or your aged rums. It's not It's not really a, a desired thing for a lot of producers. Mm. The quality of the mezcal, as you said is kind of understood to be in the method and in the cultivation of the agave itself, not in the treatment after that happens. So for most producers, once this is distilled, it's in bottle and it's out the door to be sold on a shelf. Yeah, because I could imagine how because of those methods, it would take away from the terroir for mm -hmm. you to start doing a bunch of other stuff to it. Exactly. That being said, though, there are some aged styles so for labeling terms if you are wanting to maybe try an aged mezcal you have your reposado which is going to be rested between two months and a year uh, again normally in a cask you have your añejo which is going to be at least a year going up past that i could not find an upper limit on that so who knows how long that could go for but maybe since it is a beverage that isn't typically going to be aged in the first place. I doubt they're going much past a year to begin with. Yeah. So just know it's at least 12 months for Añejo. You have your Madurado in Vidrio, or Matured in Glass. And again, as a small caveat, if you do know how to pronounce any of these <laughs> things better than we do, as a native speaker, preferably, please message us at laidbacklush. Slide into those DMs and educate us, please. And forgive our gringo pronunciation. Very gringo. <laughs> so, Yo this... soy as gringo. <laughs> Yo soy as sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mi español es muy malo. <laughs> anyway, what right. he said. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, that means matured in glass, or directly translated to matured in glass. That is going to be a minimum of 12 months, but that is not seeing any wood aging. That is just, it has been resting in the bottle itself mm. for 12 months. That is going to kind of help smooth things out a little bit. Kind of think of it like a bottle of wine. Actually, that's, that's an interesting thing that I forgot to put in my notes that I saw in several articles in researching this episode. This is a bit of a tangent. Bear with us. But Mezcal was actually called the wine of Mexico, if I remember correctly, for a while. Interesting. Because it is such a highly terroir-driven spirit. And there is so many kinds of agave, and those agave can vary so much. Oh, yeah. Even if you look up agave, they look so different yeah. from one another. Your Esparin, your Tomala. Mm -hmm. There's even one called octopus agave, which is my favorite. I bet it's adorable. It's adorable. Well, it's also kind of crazy. It looks like a spider octopus. That is so cool. But yeah, so the um, the wine of yeah, Mexico. There, there are so many of these kinds of agave that are so highly tied to where they came from that people were thinking of it for a while as almost like a wine where, you know, 
where the Pinot Noir is grown between Burgundy, New Zealand, and Washington is going to be so mm-hmm. different in its expression. This was kind of thought to be a similar thing. So mezcal, that can kind of show you just how widely mezcal can vary. I like that. That shows a lot of respect to the variability of yeah. these beverages because they are so different from one another. And going back to you mentioned espadin, that is actually part of the reason why espadin is why it's one of the most highly cultivated kinds of agave is A, it matures in around seven to eight years normally, if I remember correctly, versus mm-hmm. your standard kind of like decade or more. And it's considered to be one of the more smooth agaves or at least more approachable agaves for this style of liquor that's a large reason why it's used so much in production i really want to try some uh, tabaziche because i hear that one has the greatest variability depending on where it's grown yeah that would be like a really fun uh flight lineup to try from the different dios can we please do that as an episode if you guys want to uh, give us money <laughs> to buy all that mezcal, I'll, I'll start. I'll start a, a GoFundMe, <laughs> please. Uh, so yeah, saying all that to say, mezcal is very much tied to where it's coming from, and going back back to the aging in bottle. Think of it kind of like a wine. It'll just smooth things out when it's in the bottle. It will lead to a more sophisticated expression of that bottle since it's it's not really being exposed to oxygen or anything like that. And it's also kept out of sunlight underground and constant temperature and all that. As far as the aging process, there are a couple of other ways that the flavors can either be, I wouldn't say enhanced, but altered in a way in order to present a, a different type of mezcal. Yeah. What sort of ways are we seeing? What are they doing in order to achieve those? We have our avocados in that vein. Avocado. With a B, as in boy. Mm-hmm. Avocados are going to be flavored or infused mezcals. These specifically permit the magway worms. It will also have lime, orange, mango, and honey. There is something that I copied over from an article called uh, Damiana. I have no idea what that is. If you are Mexican, please let us know because I'm very curious. If it's a local fruit, I want to try it. I like exploring indigenous fruits that we are not familiar with. Fruits that have not been part of your current experience. Yes. Yes. Then we also, in terms of kind of a modified expression of mezcal, we have our destilado con or mezcales de pechuga. This one is fascinating and very unique among pretty much any beverage that I've come across. Yes. These are mezcals that... During the second distillation, or potentially they might add a third distillation onto this, fruits, meats, herbs, and other various spices and flavoring ingredients are added to the distillate liquid that's being used in the still to then be distilled again. Now, for those of you who had your head just cocked sharply sideways when he said meat. That's real. That's real. We're talking chicken turkey Mm -hmm. or venison so deer meat yeah and they are put in raw and the kind of the appeal of this style is this is something that is typically done when a certain group of things are harvested so in the united states in the fall we harvest our pumpkins and our grains and our whatnot and that reflects in you know our pumpkin spice lattes 
<laughs> um, <laughs> our, but, our one amazing cultural product. <laughs> yeah. But think of it that way. It's a very localized what is coming to fruition and being harvested in that span of time. That is what typically gets pulled together and then put in the distillate. That puts a whole new meaning to seasonal flavor. Yeah, no, it, it really is a truly seasonal flavor because it's what the earth is giving you at that time. It's my understanding these drinks are also very smooth, mm -hmm. possibly because of the proteins and animal fats. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of chemistry going on there. Some really interesting chemistry going on there. I would love to try this. They are very rare and they are very rarely exported at that. So we might have to actually take a real field trip to to see if we can find a any. real field trip you yeah, say a real field trip wow across the border field trip that's quite the undertaking that i might be down for if yeah. we can find a guide yeah exactly <laughs> that is your mezcalas de pachuga or your distillado cone and distillado cone will typically have whatever it was distilled with after it because that just means distilled with in english now, for those of you who were a little bit concerned when we started talking about the autoclaves, there is a way to determine when you're reading on that bottle and you're looking at whether or not it's Blanco, Reposado, Añejo. There is also a couple of designations that you're going to want to look for if you're wanting to either avoid or try the autoclave method. There is regular mezcal, and then there is mezcal artisanal. Now, regular mezcal will allow for the high-tech kind of autoclaves. You're allowed diffusers. It has the least amount of restrictions on the method that can be employed in order to create that type of mezcal. Mm -hmm. However, mezcal artisanal, you must use the traditional methods. It yeah. must be roasted in a pit or a, mm -hmm. a stone oven, I believe. Yeah. And it has to be in a clay pot. Yes. Or in copper. Mm-hmm depending on the the specificity, but those are going to be your two designations so that you can see about getting something that you're aiming for. A few other labeling terms just to know that I wanted to share real quick are your other DOs aside from Oaxaca. The reason we kind of focused on Oaxaca is, again, it is the largest exporter to the United States. It is primarily what you will find on the shelf here. They are a huge market, humongous market. But the other DOs that you can find are Durango, Guanajuato, Guerrero. Guerrero? There is a reason I skipped over this section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I believe it is Guerrero. You have uh, San Luis Potosi, Puebla, Michoacan, Tamaulipas, and Zacatecas. So these are your other DOs. I probably horrifically butchered all of those names i am so sorry to anyone listening from mexico <laughs> i even looked them up on google and it just didn't it didn't click <laughs> it didn't click <laughs> the white boy brain is too strong and set in its ways <laughs> but at least i know how to read them from a bottle so if we do do that yeah. terroir yeah. tobaziche episode <laughs> we can totally Bring in somebody else to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just another small thing before we wrap up this portion of the episode is your producers are typically going to be called fabricas or palenques. They are people that have typically been producing for if it's been kept in like a family, they're typically been going for around 200 years. They're still making it in that traditional style 
200 years is from what I understand around the time when the conquistadors were thought to have started bringing distillation into the mix. So that's when it would have popped up. Kind of like Italian wines, a lot of these old family producers that have been making wine for 400 years and it just gets passed down from father to son or whatever. Think of it like that. They will actually, the Fabricas, they will bring home the polke, which is the just plain liquid, the fermented liquid before the distillation. Now, that's hmm. been around for around 400 years. Yeah. And that's what was used during the more uh, ceremonial practices, the more ritualistic things. Hmm. But now it's just something that they'll have. It's apparently very sweet, mm-hmm. uh, very caramelly, and they'll just have that around the house. Hmm. Interesting. Just a little a little treat yeah. for everybody. Well, speaking of treats. Yeah. So we have a treat for us. Mezcal is typically going to be consumed like you would a scotch or a bourbon. So tequila, people will shoot it. People will mix it. You can mix mezcal. Mm-hmm. But mezcal is a sipping beverage. In point of fact, we have this lovely mezcal. We have poured it into some snifter glasses, which is the correct choice. This one was in the $30 to $40 range. We had a small selection to go from. It is the Del Magüe Vida from De San Luis del Rio. It is from Oaxaca, and it is an artisanal or uh, artisanal mezcal. So this was done in a traditional method. It is delightful. I've been sipping on this now for a couple of days. Not straight, um, but I've, I've had the lovely opportunity to be able to enjoy this. What are your thoughts on this, Gabe? I love this. Um, I, full disclosure, have purchased a bottle of this for myself a while back. Our ABC stores are fairly limited still in what we can find for Mezcal. Salute the Commonwealth. (laughs) Yeah. I really liked this. When I first tried it, I like it just as much now. It is smoky. It's definitely smoky. It's not crazy intense smoke, but you have a pretty... Pretty strong nose overall, not yeah. just with the smoke, though. There's a lot of fruit. Fruit is really the next thing that I, I get to yeah. here, particularly some banana, some tangerine. Some plantain. Plantain. Me, I get a lot of sandalwood and plantain together. Mm-hmm. There's a, just a lot of tropical fruits, really. Um, I wouldn't quite go pineapple, but I would say some mango and some some like melons. Yeah, it's a bit too smooth to be that kind of high-toned citrusy note that mm-hmm. you get out of pineapple. Yeah, I, I mentioned during uh, another attempt at recording, <laughs> almost like a baked pineapple, but I think I was going more off of the kind of sweet baked bread. Yeah, and um, there's some earthiness, not just the smoke earthiness, but kind of like dried leaves and dirt, forest floor kind of thing. But much drier than what you would find around here, obviously. Maybe like the leaves on the outside of the fire pit. Yeah, that that's actually like a really good way to put it. Um, yeah. Just kind of like a very dusty earthiness, nothing damp or dank or anything like that. The, overall, this is very clean mezcal. Very much so. And I mentioned it at the start of the episode, I believe, that mezcal, at least this mezcal, it doesn't have the same type of heavy woodiness that you get out of a scotch or a bourbon yeah this is a very clean wood like this is freshly cut Mm -hmm. which makes it very unique among other types of distilled spirit it gives it something to offer outside of the profile of a scotch or a bourbon that i think is really worth it if you are a fan Mm -hmm. of scotch and bourbon yeah it's uh it's definitely in its own class don't 
think it's too similar, but particularly the smoke, yeah, and the complexity that you can get, I, I would definitely put on on par. If you enjoy a complex spirit, this to me is kind of like it's a white liquor. Most mezcal is clear mm-hmm. white. Some of your aged ones can start to get some some yellow, some gold in there, but this is perfectly clear what we're drinking. Most of them will be. For me, this is kind of a a dark liquor drinker's white liquor. Yeah, if that makes sense. Or cigar smoker's white liquor. Yeah, this is just delightful to sniff on and to sip on. Which absolutely let, let me do a little sip, sippy sip myself. So one thing about mezcal, you feel the heat. You do feel it, kind of in, in all of them that I've tried. <coughs> Keep that in. <laughs> you feel the heat i feel the heat yeah that was my first sip of the day and i took a little bit too big of one mistakes are made <laughs> so the body on this is very round for how intense the alcohol is on the finish it's not very jagged on the palate it's not like um, a bourbon in particular tends to on the palate be very aggressive in terms of the alcohol for me this is not quite like that this is a lot smoother, very round, very mouth-filling, and the flavors pretty much match the nose. Um, more of that smoky flavor does come in on the palate, I think, and it lingers a little bit more, but uh, the fruit is also very, very much present. Yeah. I have to completely agree with you. And, you know, I, I kind of want to say there's almost like a, now that I'm thinking about it, kind of almost like a hazelnutty, chestnutty kind of thing where it's um it's not quite dark enough to be a walnut or a pecan but it's not light enough to be an almond either it it kind of mixes with that low-key vanilla note Mm -hmm. once it gets onto the palate yeah but there there's a there's a nuttiness here i would not say it's very prominent but yeah it kind of adds to that roundness a bit i Mm -hmm. think yeah because it it hits your tongue and it doesn't strike you as being sharp Mm mm-hmm you feel the heat, but the roundness is very much so present. Yeah. The body on this is great. It's, again, you are going to feel it once you swallow, but particularly for a sipping liquor, great feeling in the mouth. Absolutely fantastic. And the finish is very long on this. I'm still tasting it pretty intensely, and I have not taken a sip for probably a minute now. It is everlasting, in my opinion. The very professional qualifier of everlasting. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Some things that people will pair this with uh, will include lamb barbocha, grilled cactus. You can actually mix it with espresso coffee, and apparently it's very good. Ooh, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, And spicy tuna tostadas. And uh, I, I know we said this is, you know, supposed to, traditionally speaking, be a sipping liquor in America. And I think for good reason, it has really taken off as a cocktail mixer. Well, not mixer, uh, cocktail liquor. Yeah. If it's going to be inside of a liquor, they can use it for a splash of kind of wood and smoke because Mm -hmm. it is so strong. Yeah. But a lot of times it is the star of the drink. It's amazing that this is becoming so popular now because of the fact that you do have so many craft beverage drinkers now. I love the fact that this is becoming a much more popular drink for people to try out. Mm-hmm. There are some issues, though, with sustainability. I don't want to go too much into this. Uh, I know you don't really care to either, but because— It's the, worth mentioning. It's it's worth mentioning. Yeah. Hope, we just only being super negative. 
Yeah, hopefully this is the best case scenario. Due to the fact that it takes such a long time for agave to mature, and it does require so many resources from the land, where you're only getting about one bottle per agave plant, Mm -hmm. hopefully, best case scenario, the industry as it is infused with the money that is generated by this newfound interest will be funneled into creating more sustainable practices. Yeah. There are a lot of concerns right now about the sustainability of the industry. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they've put a lifespan on it yet. I don't think so. And a large part of it is coming from, as you said, the agave production, cultivation just takes a long time. So because the market, particularly in Oaxaca, Oaxaca is kind of the main place where it's really starting to rear some problems, is... Because it has become so massive, people are over-harvesting and Mm. over-harvesting particularly indigenous forms of agave that now are at risk of being wiped out. So that's the concern. The other factor is because this is made in a traditional way, as as we mentioned, charcoal and wood is used. So that's also a big CO2 emitter. The harvesting of the wood is also detrimental depending on how much or little access to wood you have in the first place for the environment so uh, there there are some concerns and the other really big concern is the producers themselves are often not getting great wages or return for what they're producing i personally would really like to see an oversight board set up to monitor those two issues in particular the environmental and making sure you're keeping your producers going and taking care of them aspect. Yeah. And I think as more money goes into it, as there's increased awareness of the industry and the artisans that are responsible for making what is a beautiful beverage, Mm -hmm. there can be and hopefully will be a little bit more movement generated in that direction. Yeah. Focus on sustainability, um, fair wages, because this is such a beautiful drink. It would be so detrimental to the environment, but also – so depressing to those of us who love these beverages, these yeah. cultural icons. Yeah. If this drink was no longer in production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be clear, like this is a part of Mexican culture. Like they were drinking this long before it became popular in the United States. And so even just from that perspective, I, I, I want it to continue. So that way it can continue to be a cultural heritage for people. Yeah. And as part of that cultural heritage, a, a world heritage of a culture that can be celebrated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I really love this drink. Hopefully we'll be able to try a little bit more in the future. If there are any mezcals that you've had that you've particularly enjoyed or you have any questions, please go ahead and message us at Laid Back Lush. And we would love to be able to talk to you about it. This is something that is fairly new to both me and Gabe. Mm-hmm. So we would love your recommendations. If you haven't already done so, please follow us at Laid Back Lush on Instagram and Twitter. And thank you so much for joining us on our 20th episode. Yeah. Next time, we may be doing a field trip. I know that we also have been thinking about revisiting some of our earlier episodes, <laughs> specifically the wine tasting episodes. We're, uh, yeah. 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 We're yeah. not quite happy with those anymore. Well, it, it was a good starting place. But we believe yeah. that we can offer you value. We are constantly learning, and we thank you for the opportunity to be able to learn how to communicate this better. Yeah. Because we love doing this. We love being able to bring this information to 
our listeners, especially those of you who have the least amount of exposure and the most amount of curiosity. Yep. That's what we hope to carry with us, that curiosity, that uh, ability to articulate and communicate what we know and what we don't know as we learn it to our listeners. So thank you guys so much for joining us. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>